0: Growing up, we were on this block in Inglewood, I
1: was eight or nine, and the neighbor had said something insulting, and so we ended up in a fight. The whole neighborhood was surrounding us, and my brothers were like, you have to fight. There was a realization that to grow up in this neighborhood, I needed to fend for myself. I just remember this kid takes a skateboard and tries to hit me. I grab it and I punch him, and I basically won the fight. And I was this little girl, right? I remember going home to my dad and just bawling, and my brothers got their butt whipped from my father because they didn't protect me. Me. No one's going to fight the fight for you, and you have to stick up for yourself because if you don't, you're going to be bullied even more. My name is Lan Fan, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to
2: Modern Minorities.
3: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
2: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
3: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
2: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
3: It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model
2: minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us.
3: Today, we're talking to Lan Pham, the founder of Community of Seven which brings together brands and nonprofits to solve big business and societal problems, basically helping companies do good things through content, events, and loyalty programs. And honestly, one of Land's beliefs is during times of transition, like what we're in right now, communities more important than ever. She's got the resume. She's had the big brands, working with Widening Kennedy. She founded her own music agency. She's worked at Forbes, the ANA. And she was pretty active in commercial real estate before she was 30, which isn't bad for someone who grew up in the rough and tumble neighborhoods of LA. What do you think, Sharon? She's
2: a freaking rock star. She's a rock star. So many things that she was talking about, I felt I could really relate to, except until she got to the point where she was like, You know, because she grew up in rough and tumble neighborhoods, saw some street fights, participated in street fights herself. Not She was
3: was like, I learned the importance of fighting. And I was like, oh, yeah, like fighting for what you believe in. No fighting, (laughs) actual fighting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like literally taking a skateboard and hitting someone with it. Uh, Okay,
3: no, no. Hang on. She she took the person's skateboard and then hit them instead of them hitting her with the
2: skateboard. Right, right. That's true. (laughs) That's true. You're right. Because it is all about fighting your own fight. And, and she did talk about that. But she's also, I mean, so it was like this big, huge disparity between that experience in childhood and then kind of really having that model minority education experience. I mean, I look at her resume and I'm jealous. Like she went to Stanford, she went to Harvard Graduate School of Education. Like she has all of those bullet points. She started and run successful companies throughout all that. and And she does it with so much gusto and bravado and i think a lot of it comes from those beginnings and those initial lessons that she learned in life yeah there was something at the
3: very end i guess i won't reveal the quote but like her quote about the table yeah really stuck with me i like i want to print that out for my daughter
2: yeah know? yeah she's kind of the definition of self-made a lot of the stories that she told us just moments in her life where she found an opportunity or created an opportunity and went with it i think is i find to be so inspirational and just and also kind of understanding that she didn't have a path that was already carved for her, right? Like she didn't have people in her life that was showing her the way. Like she grew up in her mom's nail salon, literally. She tells us about that and how she's just she's been able to create this very successful path for herself really just kind of following her gut. Yeah, so please meet our friend Lan.
3: Lan Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
3: All right, so I gotta ask: Did I say your name correctly? (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. It's Lan. My middle name is Tan, and my last name is Fan.
2: Wow! Thank you, Lan's parents. That's a lot of (laughs) of poetry right there in one name, Lan.
1: And guess what? My brother's name is. What is it? Van Tan Fan. And I have an older brother. And guess what his name is? What is it? Bob. (laughs) No, it's actually Con. Khan Duan fan freaking parents. I want to ask a
3: question about this. So you're Vietnamese American or Vietnamese and were you I don't, I don't know what I say that anyway. My question is this. In the Vietnamese language, is rhyming a thing you want to do with names? Like is, does, does that <laughs> sound no, I mean seriously, does that sound alliteration in English is a thing that's used in literature? Is maybe rhyming a thing?
1: I have no clue, but I do know my parents wanted all of our names to have the A-N sound. So, growing up, because my middle brother, Van Fan, we're kind of like three years apart. So, we would always be made fun of because it would be like, Van Fan, the ice cream man. And it was like just, we grew up in a neighborhood where there weren't that many Asians. So, we were made fun of a lot growing up in Los Angeles.
3: Well, can you tell us a story about that? It sounds like it wasn't the Hollywood Beverly Hills part. Oh Los Angeles,
1: no, which we're no. So I grew up in Inglewood, California. Oh wow, which is predominantly black and Mexican. I don't want to say Hispanic because it was Mexican. And I grew up to my parents are Vietnamese refugees, which means I'm a Vietnamese refugee. So we came. Probably, were you
3: born there, or and came over with them?
1: No, I was born in Vietnam, but I left when I was probably around eight months old or so. So I always kind of think about. I worry a lot just now as a parent as well. And I just realized that a lot of that is I'm in my mom, mother's womb while we're escaping Vietnam with nothing but the clothes on our backs. And we come first to actually San Francisco. We lived in the Tenderloin area. We were a family of five. We lived in a one-bedroom studio where there wasn't a kitchen. So my parents would have my brother, who was probably seven or eight at that time, go by himself. I know resp- responsible parenting to go get food at the Chinese restaurant around the corner because we just didn't have a kitchen. And so we spent probably a year or two in the Tenderloin area of, of San Francisco. And then we moved to Los Angeles, first Inglewood, California, and then Hawthorne, California to be around my father's sister.
3: What was that like? I mean, I grew up in Alabama and it was mostly white people. So there weren't a lot of Indians, but an observation I made a long time ago as a child Indians, because of how we came over in the 60s and 70s, for very different reasons than Vietnamese people came over, but there were a handful of Vietnamese people in, I knew Indians, I knew Vietnamese Americans, I didn't know a lot of Chinese Americans, and I knew a few Thai Americans, but the Indians and the Thais were the quote-unquote model minorities, our parents were doctors, engineers, versus Vietnamese Americans, and as I learned later in high school, because of why they came over, came over into a very different socioeconomic strata, and it sounds like Again, the neighborhood you grew up in was very different from the neighborhood I grew up in, even though very we both different. didn't grow up with a lot of Asians, right? Like <laughs> no. I didn't have different Asians. I didn't have a lot of Asians, but no. it, it was a really nice neighborhood.
1: Yeah. So the Asians that I did grow up with were, were Southeast Asian, Hmong, Vietnamese, basically to quote unquote the poor Asians. And growing up, it's one of those things where we were all poor, so I never really realized I was poor. Until I got older and I went to Stanford and I was like, wow, we were really poor. So it's all about context, right? But I actually had a pretty happy childhood. I mean, the one thing I can say is that you learn from adversity. And I fought a lot because you had to. You're fighting to kind of survive in some ways.
3: What does that mean? Like fisticuffs? Yeah,
1: literally Fist. One of my earliest memories was, so we were kind of on this block on like 118th Street. And I don't know if you know of how California houses are like, kind of like in that Inglewood kind of Los Angeles area, but there's a lot of front yards that are kind of raised a little bit. It's not like the yards you get in the more suburban neighborhoods. And so it almost looks like a boxing ring. And one of my earliest memories was I was six or seven, maybe actually was a little bit older. I was probably eight or nine. And the next board neighbor had said something insulting. And so we ended up getting on a, in a fight. And I just remember the whole neighborhood was surrounding us. And my brothers were there. And it's not surprising, but they were like, you have to fight. You know what I mean? And normally you would think, oh, they would protect you. But they realized, I don't know if it was a re- realization that in order to grow up in this neighborhood, I had needed to fend for myself. But I just remember fighting this, this kid. He takes a skateboard and tries to hit me. I grab it and I punch him. And I basically won the fight. And I'm so badass. Bad.
2: You are so badass.
3: I should not say that as a parent. That that I'm not cool, little land. No, but, but I, whoa. But That's I remember awesome, like the whole
1: neighborhood was just because I was this little girl, right? And then I remember going home to my dad and just bawling, crying, even though I didn't cry at all during the fight. I was like tough. And I just remember my brothers got their butt whipped because (laughs) from my father because they didn't protect me. But it was a a lesson that I took with me growing up, which is no one's going to fight the fight for you. And you have to stick up for yourself because if you don't, you're going to you're going to be bullied even more, and so that was kind of like my earliest memory and it was pretty much that, and some of my earliest memories was growing up in surprise. My mom did nail and hair in the nail and hair shop, so starting from the age probably eleven or twelve, I literally was raised in a beauty salon, and so I learned a lot of lessons there too and it probably helped me a lot because I stayed out of trouble because literally right after school from junior high on, I would go and to the beauty salon and study. And my mentors were basically the women in the shop. So those were kind of my earliest memories, kind of growing up.
3: Wow. Wow. I want to contrast the lessons because, like us, you're a parent now. And I know the neighborhood you grew up in because it's, or the neighborhood you live in because it's near where I used to live in New York in the Hudson Valley. And it's not like Englewood. <laughs> and, no. Hey, I would imagine there's not a lot of boxing ring skateboard fights in no, the neighborhood. Not so, at all. that lesson that you learned, right? That no one's going to fight the fight for you. How do you make that more than just words for your kids? Because that was a learned experience for you.
1: I think about this all the time because my daughter's five now. We live in Dobbs Ferry in Westchester. So, it's very
3: nice. A floor.
1: <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Very posh. So, yeah. The environment, and to give you a little bit background, I'm Vietnamese. My husband is Jamaican, and so our. So da- you look daughter- like
3: everybody in Dobbs Ferry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we say our daughter's Jamaican.
1: Oh, but- I love that. <laughs>
3: to be fair, to be fair, to respect Dobbs Ferry, the other two friends I have there, one is Indian and one is Arab Palestinian, married to a Japanese one. So <laughs> <laughs> it is the Jeffersons, it's, exactly. Yeah, moving on up,
1: but I mean, I guess. It's funny because I've had these kind of conversations with my husband because we ended up having our daughter go to the public schools here, right? But public schools here is much different than the public schools I went to in Los Angeles, where I think about my high school, her High School. We were known for our race riots, not our academics. And I remember we used to have a police car literally in the middle of our school because they were afraid of... We literally had the race riots between the Blacks. The Samoans and the Mexicans, you know what I mean? Sometimes the Southeast Asians would kind of come in there or the Filipinos. So that's kind of the background of my growing up, right? Learning how to fight. And so with my daughter, who's five now, her name is Morgan. She is the most trusting, angelic little girl you will ever meet. And one of the things I talked to my husband about is like, okay, well, I want to give her all these opportunities, but at the same time, I don't want, when I went to Stanford, I just remember God, these kids that were so entitled, right? One of my first memories was this Asian kid. He was on a boat and he had this Rolex and I didn't even know what a Rolex was, but he was just like literally throwing it. We were on a boat and he threw it in the water and he's like, I'll just get another one, right?
2: No. Oh my God.
1: But it was that kind of like wealth and entitlement. And I want my daughter to I think struggle makes you who you are. Yeah, yeah. But what happens when you want to give your child everything, right? So the best schools, the best training, the best whatever it is, right?
3: I call it the Amazon Prime effect. I think I have a four-year-old, right? And we live in a nice suburb outside of New York City. And she sees if mom and dad want something, just click a button and you get it. And she's exactly. gotten to the point where she asks. And, you know, I'm like, you know what? We're going to buy some used e- used Legos on Craigslist or eBay. That's that's how we're going to roll. And even that is like a little entitled. But yeah. like.
1: No. Like every anything, you know, whenever she, my daughter sees a, a box, you know, like Amazon box, she's like, oh, is that for me? <laughs>
3: it's a present. It's a gift.
1: <laughs> but like, I guess the thing is with my husband, one of my early kind of, she was about probably one or one and a half. So she was starting to kind of walk. And my first reaction as a parent is whenever she fell, I would like, Oh my God, are you okay? And he'd be, he would, he would literally take his hand and just stop. He's like, stop. She needs to learn how to get up by herself. And I was like, this is a one and a half year old. Are you crazy? No way. <laughs> right? So I, when that,
3: when that was happening, my daughter was learning to walk. I'm going to nerd out on you. In the Christopher Nolan Batman movie, the dad's like, why do we fall so we can learn to get back up again and i said that around my daughter and my wife was like you know bruce wayne's dad got killed
1: <laughs> <laughs> and his mom and his mom and his mom exactly <laughs> but it's true because he he became batman because of his adversity right and so you don't want to protect and coddle your your kids so much but so my husband is Jamaican and so one of the things that they're taught early on is life is hard so you need to prepare your kids for the real world, which is a lot different than American culture, where it's kind of like you—you you basically try to sanitize the world. Well, it's, it's, it's
3: entitlement that manifest destiny. The world is ours to take. I don't—I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's part of the entrepreneurial spirit of this country: is get out there and take it. You know, because the world is yours. Exactly. But that has a dark edge, the, the, the entitlement, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it, it's something that we kind of struggle with, but we also have being kind of to people of color, we have a lot of family or friends who are not as privileged, right? And so we're able to kind of go to the Bronx, go to Brooklyn, go to LA, and they're getting the full experience, right? And so it's not just like they're in this kind of pristine, kind of sheltered Westchester world. We're also taking her to Brooklyn, right? So she needs to see kind of though i have to say
3: not park slope not park slope. yeah <laughs> no
1: but it's funny because the last time we took her to brooklyn because we still and we were on flatbush and she's like this place is so dirty and i was like oh my gosh
0: oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's she's now a westchester child
3: i struggle with this i really do i want my kid to have everything but by the more, giving
1: them
2: everything yeah. you yeah. yeah it's a disservice yeah. to them yeah yeah yeah
3: it's, i don't it, want my kid is, to grow up an asshole
2: i do feel like it's in some ways, it's more complicated though, because like, so I have two kids, Lan, and they are, my husband and I call them privilege urchins. You know, we live in Long Island City. We literally have an apartment that's right on the waterfront. When we travel, we, we stay in five-star hotels, just partially because I just love them, but also because we can. We are privileged compared to the way that I grew up. And it's, it's this interesting thing where it's almost like you have to manifest and create situations so that they can learn to either get up when they fall or like some equivalent of that. Right. So it's like, you're taking her into a different neighborhood, almost like a tourist. It's like scared straight.
1: Remember scared yeah. straight in the eighties? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they would bring kids to the prisons.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's weird as a parent because it's like, it makes me wonder if there are things that they are learning that you, me, and and never have because we just didn't grow up in those environments. But what are they naturally picking up that are actually going to help them going forward that aren't, they're never going to, hopefully they never get into a skateboard fight and all of that stuff. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, I can relate to that too, going to public school in New York City of just literally, I mean, this is before there were metal detectors in the schools, but like kids would come to school with guns in their pocket. And as a parent, thinking about that today, like freaks me out. But as a 12 year old, it was kind of normal, which is kind of weird. But what are the things that they are getting that our minds don't even realize because it's like we're manufacturing these other experiences for them based on our context of the world, whereas they probably are gaining a ton that are going to help them to get ahead in ways that we won't even ever know about because we're not of that next generation. So it's just well, kind of a,
3: a, a, a partial solution. Like I think about this a lot So, Lan, You said something earlier that we didn't know we were poor and God, this is going to sound super douchey, but like my sister and I didn't know that we were rich. And I'm not saying we were, my wife's family grew up lower middle class. My family grew up upper middle class. So we were pretty well off, but we weren't allowed to have the nice shoes, the designer clothes, we got stuff on clearance, and we got an earful if we even wanted that stuff, right? Mm. And I remember coming home once from visiting a friend in a kind of very blue collar middle class neighborhood. And saying, well, why does he get this? Why does he get that? And my dad kind of or my mom sat me down. I was like, yeah, but look at the house you live in. We go to England, we go to India, we really nice food that we buy from Atlanta, the Indian food. And I remember it wasn't until like I was a teenager and I think my parents were going on a trip and leaving me home and they kinda of showed me like just in case something happens, here's the stuff on I was like, Oh shit, like we're really well off. And I like the fact that I didn't even though we lived in a nice house and I was kind of oblivious to that, my parents wouldn't let me live that life. So even though we had all the trappings and we had the money and anything for education was, was funded, right? Not letting your kids kind of get away with it. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah.
1: No, totally. Yeah. Totally. It's all relative. When you like I
3: still can't it. use paper towels. Using paper towels freaks me out. Because
1: my dad, <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the Asian thing where your parents reuse like the butter plastic containers
3: and stuff? Oh like yeah, like we're that. totally doing that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're actually we went on a some bed and breakfast thing a few years ago where we rented a cheap Airbnb house and we went grocery shopping and we got our own thing of butter. That's literally the butter tub in our fridge. Still <laughs> <three> years ago.
2: <laughs> so funny. A
3: lot of Chipotle napkins in our house. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We used to have all that in my house. McDonald's, napkins, Burger King. I tell my kids all the time that their grandma, my mom used to make barbecue chicken using the McDonald's barbecue sauce. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you know what's funny is that when you grow up, I remember growing up and think, I will never be like this. And you open my kind of drawers and it looks like it looks just like my parents. And I'm like, yeah. Behavior, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: Yeah. All right. So we'll talk a little bit about what you currently do. But I want to talk about what you used to do. You ran Wasn't quite a record label, but kind of like a hip hop agency. You drove a getaway car. Yeah, yeah,
1: I want to hear about this getaway car. So I was a booking agent for long for, God, three, four, five years or so. So long ago, I forget how long exactly. But right after college, I actually was a high school teacher. And then I got frustrated with the bureaucracy and I was just jaded by the system. So I literally quit and started my own booking agency with my partner, Esther Yoon. And we were booking, at that time, hip-hop wasn't what it is today, right? So this so would we be like of,
3: what, mid-90s or what, when was this?
1: Yeah, it was like in the 90s, kind of like late 90s. Okay, and
3: okay. so
1: we booked artists like Fife Dog, Farside, after their fame, and a, little, a lot of DJs, Z-Trip, Triple Threat DJs. Back then it was like underground hip-hop. But these guys were also making a decent amount of money, $15,000, $20,000 for a like one-hour performance. So I was doing that for a while. I guess a story behind this hip-hop group named Dead Prez. I was kind of in talks with them, of I mean, possibly booking them, and they were in San Francisco doing a show. And so they did a show, I think it was at Slim's, or one of the clubs in San Francisco. And I, was, I drove the artist and their manager to the club. At the end... The promoter didn't want to pay for them. So their manager at that time looked at me and he was like, Lan, get your car, bring it to the front of the club. I was like, shit. (laughs) But I was like, okay. And this is like a Honda Accord
3: or something, right? I was like,
1: (laughs) ride or die, bring my Ford Explorer to the front. It wasn't probably like 20 minutes later. They come out, they walk, they're strolling. And I was like, everything cool? He's like, yep, we got paid. (laughs) So... I was not there to witness what happened, but let's just say the promoter (laughs) didn't want to pay. And at the end, they did pay. Yeah, So (laughs) I was like a booking agent for a while. And then I turned the company into kind of like a music marketing kind of company where we did music for commercials like Gap and Nike. That was funny because that was like a paradigm shift too because I was a booking agent at that time. I got a call from a, it's like a casting director working on a Nike commercial. And she was like, we're doing a Nike commercial and the agency White & Kennedy wants to have some music there. And she was like, do you guys have producers? We had about a hundred something artists at that time, but we were just booking agents, booking shows. And I was like, yes, we, we actually do. Because in my head, I was like, well, I'm sure these DJs and artists could also make music for commercials, right? And I was like, yes, we have 100 producers that can be on this commercial. And she's like, well, how much would this cost? And I had no idea. I just made something up. I was like, we can do custom make music for like $60,000, $70,000 for a commercial. And at that time, that was a lot of money. And so literally a week later, we flew to New York. And then we, we then turned the booking agency into a music marketing company that worked with like commercials and advertising. So that was kind of the start of my foray into marketing and advertising, which I then started doing for like over 20 years.
3: That's so cool.
1: Wow.
2: And then you went on from there to become a real estate tycoon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't really call myself a tycoon. But yes, one of the things my refugee parents would always say is that Make sure you buy real estate. That was the first thing that was ingrained in me. So when I was about 22 or so, I bought my first property. This was actually while I was a teacher. And it was kind of also kind of when you were a teacher, you got paid for the summer at that time, three months before. So I literally had the down payment. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for the rest. But I used that money that was upfront. And I used that as a down payment. I think back then you were able to kind of use put 5% down or something. And I brought this kind of condo in downtown Oakland. That property appreciated by $100,000 the next year. And then I pulled out money and I bought more more real estate. And then you basically create that over and over again. And I ended up at the height, probably having about six to seven units, but they were like probably about 20, 30 units in total. So I was doing that for like, for several years. And then I just got
3: tired. and what, burnt out. Yeah, But yeah, you got tired and burned down, but what led to the, the willingness and the, to kind of double down and like, just put more momentum and more risk on the line.
1: Well, my I Asian mean,
3: parenting says, don't do that.
1: <laughs> no, I know. I, I've kind of always had like an untraditional, I guess, path, but my one motivation was my, my father passed away when I was in my twenties when I was in college. And so I had to support my family, right. I had to support my mom. Cause my mom's like a hairdresser kind of supporting, she supported our family of five on her, her income. So I knew that in order for me to be able to do that, I needed to make a lot
2: of money. So I was motivated by money.
3: Yeah. (laughs) but, But it sounds like it was the thing that seemed to be working.
2: Right. So yeah. Yeah. It also sounds a little bit like survival, right? It's like you felt the pressure to be that provider in order to, yes. in some ways, yeah. survive.
1: And so real estate was probably the, I think I might've stumbled into it, but it also was kind of the mantra that my my mother and my father had, mainly my father at that time, which was like, make sure you buy real estate. And so growing up, I was in most 20s, I didn't buy fancy clothes or I was just focused singularly on how do I be- build businesses and how do I make money?
2: And what so, what do you think inspired that? Like, I think, because as I hear your story about how, the booking agency became a music marketing agency, like literally overnight. It was just like, you got a phone call and you were like, yeah, I can do it. And you hopped into it, figured it out, dove really, you kind of made it up first. And then you actually had to like make that vision a reality. I feel like the same thing kind of happened with real estate. You knew you wanted to invest in something because that's the practical thing to do. But then at some point you decided you were going to make that into something more, Right. What inspires that?
1: It's that adversity, right? So growing up, if you didn't have, you may do. So if you didn't have, if the TV wasn't working, you would get like foil, Reynolds wrap foil and just like kind of make it makeshift antennas, (laughs)
2: right? Have you really done that?
1: (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) We were poor, right? And so I just remember my dad was like the first hustler that I had, which was because my dad couldn't work because he was disabled. And it was mainly my income from my mom's being a hairdresser. And so we were in this little house in you know Inglewood, kind of Hawthorne area. And he basically subdivided the backyard because the, the backyard lots are really huge in Hawthorne. And he basically created, this is like, gosh, 30, 40 years ago, he basically subdivided the backyard and built a little shanty house and he rented them out. Right. And so it's one of those things where you just figure it out because you're surviving. My dad couldn't work. And so he basically just built these mini and we had literally 10 different Vietnamese kind of families, refugees living in our backyard. What? Wow. It was crazy, but yeah, but we survived. (laughs) Yeah,
3: I want to <laughs> tilt into being Vietnamese. You had 10 families living in your backyard. Did you grow up speaking Vietnamese? Do you still speak it? Do you speak it at home? What's your connection to the language and the culture? Because you're pretty far removed from it now.
1: Yeah, so I speak it, but I always say kind of in a childlike, because my parents would only speak to me in Vietnamese. So that's the reason why I know how to speak Vietnamese today. However, I also grew up in the Inglewood, Los Angeles, Hawthorne area where most of my friends were either Hispanic or Black. And so I didn't really speak that much Vietnamese. So like I didn't get to practice it, right? And so growing up, I never felt like I was really any part of a community. I wasn't Vietnamese enough because I didn't really speak it or I just kind of wasn't like the other Vietnamese kids. Definitely wasn't Black and I definitely wasn't Mexican, right? But I was kind of accepted in those communities, but I was never really fully a part of them.
3: It's kind of a weird question to ask, but when you were growing up, what did your parents want you to be when you grew up?
1: Oh, like every Asian parent, a doctor or a lawyer huh. or engineer. Probably
3: <laughs> it's just such a different context. That's obviously the answer most a lot right. of our Asian guests say, but it was my
1: mom has no concept of what marketing is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so twenty, thirty years later she still doesn't know what I
3: <laughs> Yeah. That's a club, man. I, yeah, I don't think my yeah. parents get it. We're all, we're all in that club. I
1: think when I was in the music industry, though, we got some press. And so I think with the success of it and seeing kind of some of the work I had actually on TV or a Gap campaign actually in the stores.
3: It was a real tangible thing.
1: Yeah. So she was like, OK, I don't know what you're doing. I still don't know what you're doing, but you're doing OK. You're not starving.
3: <laughs> my dad said something like that to me as well. He was he didn't get it, but he was like, oh, OK, so you're at this big company you're able to afford these things. (laughs) Yeah. You're fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And in your case, I mean, to kind of boast about your accomplishments, you got into Stanford and you went to Harvard. So when those moments happened, how did your parents respond to that?
1: It wasn't excitement. It was just like, okay, good. Really? You know, I think the thing with
2: Asian parents. <laughs> it wasn't like the bill? The bills that are going to come through? Yeah, it wasn't, you know it wasn't it like, is? wow, you made it. We're so proud of you. Nothing? No, nothing like well, that?
3: Asian parents don't express pride they that way, Sharon.
2: Come on. I, know. I would think that with at least an Ivy League acceptance, you'd get a hug. No hug?
1: Probably behind. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't think I hugged either of my parents. My mom, not until after college. And that's because I kind of forced her to hug me. And now now we're huggers. But I think it's just kind of like the Asian ethos, right? Of the raising parents. You can't show weakness, right? And you have to always have high expectations. Because I just remember growing up, if I would get an A minus, why didn't you get an A? If you got an A, why didn't you get an A plus, right? And then it was like always the next thing. So even when I got into Stanford and then Harvard, it was kind of just like, oh, good. One of the funny stories is my dad was... On his deathbed, he literally was in a de- his deathbed at the hospital. And my brother comes in and he had graduated from UCLA and he got this really great job at Ernst Young, which was one of, I guess not, it's not Big Six, whatever it was back then, Big Nine, the big accounting firms. And he told my dad, Hey, I, I got a job at EY. And the first thing my dad asked was, So how much are they paying you? And my brother was like, I think it was like 30,000 at that time, which was, I guess, a lot back then for a graduate. And my dad was like, that's all. (laughs) And that's like, literally, my dad (laughs) is deathbed. My brother and I still laugh at it to this day. But even on his deathbed, it was like, no, like, I'm proud of you,
3: son. Right. Like, that's all. That's it. You know, where that makes me that makes me sad in a happy way is I think every parent you want to know your kids are going to be able to take care of themselves. And so I think the expectation of that number isn't the A plus, A minus thing, right? I genuinely think it's, and I apologize if I'm reading too much into this for your father. He wanted to make sure someone's going to be okay. You have a job? Cool. You're taken care of.
2: Yeah. And
1: you know what? I have to say this. I've heard from my cousins or family friends that my dad and both my mom as well would say how much she's proud of the children.
3: Never right. when so, you're around though. Never when you're yeah, around. Yeah,
2: never oh, to other around. people, right? Exactly. Yeah.
3: yeah. When my parents in Alabama, we were one of ten or fifteen Indian families. So these people are like family to me. But since we've left, there's like hundreds of Indian families. But my parents are kind of like part of the elders of the community. And my sister and I go home, you know, once, maybe twice a year, and we meet some of these families and they know everything about us. <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> because my parents are the elders and they're bragging about their kids and they never did it to us. 'Cause I think it's like, like weakness strength thing. But when you're not around, yeah, mom and dad say really nice things. They do. They do. How do you mirror that with raising your kids? What part of Vietnamese culture or Caribbean culture in your husband's case? How are you or actually no, I want to ask a, a question before that. How did your parents react when they found out you were marrying a Jamaican guy?
1: So my father had passed away already. So we've been married for almost ten years now. When my mom first met my husband, Surprisingly, she took him in. She was just like, okay. But part of it is we had a conversation before, and I was just talking about his values. He really values his family, and this is the thing: on the surface, Jamaican and Vietnamese or Asian culture looks nothing alike, but there's it's actually very, very similar.
2: Yeah, it is. It's very, all really about similar.
1: yeah, it's all about families, right? It's about hard work. It's about you do everything for your parents, and I fell in love with my husband when I found out how much he cared about his parents. And that's a very Asian thing to eat. Most of the time you don't fall in love with someone because they're good to their mothers. But for me, as a Vietnamese person, how you treat your parents is very important. And Your whole life is about your family, right? From your parents to raising your children. And so fundamentally we have the same values. And even if you look at the food, some of the food is very similar as well. But the cultural part was very important. And my mother realized that I was really surprised. I'll tell you this, but she loves my husband now. and But partly it's also because of him. He calls on her whenever he's in LA and let's say I'm not there, he'll bring food to her. So I think she saw the goodness in him. And so, yeah, let's say it shocked me that she accepted him so much. But yeah, she loves him.
3: How do you, because we're struggling with this too, trying to mix two cultures with a kid who's American who just wants to eat mac and cheese. How do you think about being a Vietnamese parent, a Jamaican parent to a, a kid in Westchester?
1: I mean, I mean, I, th- I think I have the same issues. It's just like mac and cheese and yeah. you nuggets. Know, like <laughs> but we try to expose her like every, besides this summer, of course, because of COVID, every summer she spends the summer with her nana, my husband's mother, my mother-in-law, in Jamaica. So she experienced the Jamaican culture, right? And oh, that's whenever that's we awesome. can, we go to LA and we visit my mom and we go to Little Saigon and she's eating pho. You know what I mean? She's getting exposed to that. We're singing Vietnamese songs to her. It's like, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the best you can do is just expose them to different things. Because in Westchester, there's not that much diversity. It's probably one of the most diverse of the river towns, but that's not really saying much.
3: Terrytown's way more diverse than that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> True. Okay. But yeah, so it's one of those things where you just do the best you can. And you also have your circle of friends. We have our circle of friends who are white, black, you know what I mean? Indian, Asian, who are in Westchester, and we kind of gravitate towards each other. We kind of look like a Benetton ad, but that's what we, we want to be exposed to that. And we want her to be exposed to that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I remember my daughter was born when we raised her originally, really close to where you live now. And at her daycare, it was a Benetton ad, and I loved it. And something I really struggle with, the, the town we moved to, my daughter's the the token brown kid now. And I don't like that. But at the same time, I try to reconcile that with, well, that's what I was. There wasn't a Benetton ad. And that adversity, and she's struggling. I mean, she's four, but she's struggling with that right now. But uh, we stayed up last night talking about this. But the university. Wait,
1: with with yeah. your wife or with your daughter?
3: Oh no, my my kids asleep. <laughs> um, oh, okay, okay. My, my wife and I. She's having some issues with friends, and I, I sometimes do wonder is it because I don't know, like I just don't know. But we never had these issues at the last two daycares, where it hmm. was more of a Benetton ad, right? She wasn't special, and now she is an other. But I was too, and that was good for me. I think it sucked, but it was good for me. you. Just. It's hard.
1: I mean, it's never easy. So I didn't grow up with a lot of kids around who looked like me. But because of my experience, it's like I can relate to so many different people. Because we literally had every kind of race. Not that many. The teachers were white. So that was probably my, my main kind of exposure to white people growing up.
3: And figures of authority. That's good. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But then I went to Stanford. Right. But it helped because I just was able to kind of get along with so many different people and really kind of relate to people because I would be the one token Asian hanging out with the black people, the one token Asian hanging out with the Mexicans and the Asians. So, So I could be in a lot of different kind of communities. And that kind of helped me for my future, you know, just career-wise or just being able to kind of be exposed to so many different things made me who I am. So I think with your daughter as well, it's kind of like, I think being different sometimes can be a struggle when you're in the moment, but you realize that that will shape and kind of make
2: you who you are later on. I love that. I'm kind of, I'm just reflecting now too on my own, my own kids who are half Asian and half black as well. So they're, I call them Blasian. (laughs) I like that. And when we were choosing schools for them in New York City, which is pretty diverse from a public school perspective, it was easy to find a public school nearby that we potentially wanted to enroll them to. But then we also looked into private schools. And one of the issues that I noticed was that there really was no diversity. Even if the admissions people were saying, oh, we're super diverse. What that meant was that there were a lot of Asian kids <laughs> in this school, <laughs> but no black kids, no Latino kids, anything else. And we ended up enrolling them at the United Nations School. And a lot of people are like, whoa, why that? Are you guys affiliated with the UN? And my answer is like, we're not affiliated with the UN, but that was the only school where I felt like it was truly going to be a place where they felt they would feel welcomed. Because like you don't get more diverse than the UN, and most of the kids are actually from their origin countries are not the US, so they're truly from France. They're truly from Morocco, and that was our solution. But now that we're moving out to LA, I think they really are going to be the only kids of color in their school, or one of the few kids of color in their school. What neighborhood, or if you don't mind, we're moving to Sherman Oaks, and their school is that's a lot of Asians in Sherman Oaks. Yeah, that's good. Yeah,
3: yeah. The Asian food's better in California. That's what I hear. And all <laughs> yeah. seriousness, like, I've had I this, this argument. No, it, it is. Is. Like, is LA or New York better? The one thing LA gets is better Asian food.
1: The yeah. best Vietnamese food is in Westminster, Little Saigon. When I came to New York, I was like, God, the Asian food sucks.
3: <laughs> so yeah. I, I, Well, so my, my wife and I have found a couple of pockets. I'll tell you offline. Like, with Okay.
1: <laughs> awesome.
3: I can't wait. <laughs> All right. So I want to ask one. So you, you've had some like pretty big name jobs, like the big agency, you've had Nike as a client at the ANA, you did Forbes stuff, but now you're doing this thing called community of seven, which I, I'll read it and I'll have already read it at the front of the episode, but why, 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 why leave the nice big stable thing? You'd made it and to go start something.
1: Well, it's an interesting origin story too that kind of circles back. So I was an entrepreneur, started a whole bunch of businesses in my 20s and then I went corporate for 25 years. And so, you know, you get comfortable as you get older, right? So the risk-taking that I would take when I'm in my 20s is different when you have kids and you have a few like mortgages to kind of, and bills to pay, right? And so at the start of COVID, I got laid off because of COVID. So my last gig was at Fortune and have a mortgage, a few mortgage. And I was just like, okay, what the heck am I gonna do? So I was depressed for a few days. And then I soul searched and I was like, what am I passionate about? Cause I've been struggling with that forever, right? And I had this realization that my passion is really about building communities and connecting people and helping people. That's what excites me, right? And I've been struggling for the past decade trying to figure out what am I passionate about? It and it's never been work, right? Uh, I've always been good at doing certain jobs, whether it's building CMO communities or leading an organization or building products. I can I'm good at it, just from a
3: operation standpoint, yeah.
1: Operation standpoint, right? But I've never felt real like real passion. And from fear, I had this oh shit moment how am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to do? So I started applying for jobs, but then I realized what I really want to do is build my passion. And it kind of came back, circling back to kind of how I grew up, right? Never feeling like I belonged, really. Always trying to find my community, right? My people. And so I realized that what I really wanted to build was this business called Community of Seven. And so literally a week later, after I got laid off, I built my website on my own. I created, this is the vision of what I want to create. And essentially Community 7, our goal is to bring business leaders, executives, thought leaders, change makers together to really tackle and solve big business and societal problems. And so the ability to bring community by bringing people together to solve problems is essentially our business mission. And I'm still kind of working out what exactly this will look like in terms of products and services. But I did something that was counterintuitive to everything that I've known about building products. In the past, even when I was at Fortune kind of building a product for them, it was about what's your MVP, right? What is your minimum viable product, which I think is such bullshit, right? (laughs) And so I turned it around and I was like, how can I bring the most value for people, That's my MVP, right? What drives me? Is it, once again, building Maximum valuable
3: product. Exactly.
1: And for building a product, it's always about how much revenue can you bring? Yada, yada, yada. You break it down. I was like, fuck that. I'm sorry.
2: You can curse. No, go
3: for (laughs)
1: it. (laughs) I was like, fuck that. I'm going to build something that I want to build. And this is probably the worst business mission just from a monetization kind of standpoint. But I was like, How can I help as many people as possible? So that's been my driving force. So we've done some different things like our Let's Talk, where we bring anywhere between 20 to 100 executives together to kind of talk about issues from parenting during COVID to unconscious bias to career pivots. And it started off with kind of female executives, but now it's kind of expanded uh, since we've kind of launched it and it's been kind of growing from there and then other things that I'm kind of pivoting and you, you guys are actually seeing me build my business in real time once again what am i passionate about how can i help people right so i got my masters at harvard in teaching a curriculum i only spent 3 4 years on the education space and then i'm pivoted to kind of being an entrepreneur and then being in advertising and marketing for 20 years. So now I've I've realized that my passion is kind of like, how do you fuse training and development with leadership? So I'm kind of looking at that kind of space. And I've already kind of talked into different big Fortune 500 companies about coming in in regards to doing training and development, but more kind of from a a conversational kind of perspective. And then I'm looking at into other things as well. So I'm building kind of, I'm literally in the test and learn phase right now. And so I've just been kind of building up the base and the following. So building up and kind of like the whole thing with building community and membership, that's my forte probably for the past decade, working with companies like the ANA, her Fortune. So I've been kind of doing that with my company. Right. So and each one of them, for example, my Facebook page, if you get to it, I really started focusing it on a month ago. It's now close to 4000 followers or likes or people who are following the business on on Facebook. The funny part is that's not my core demographic at all, right? There's a lot of Trump voters and some of these other people, I guess. they Because my strategy with my Facebook page is really just a lot of like kind of quotes in terms of life and leadership and all this other stuff. And I think they really like quotes. But once again, I go back to my MVP, which is how can I help as many people as possible? And it aligns, right? So you have to
3: be a little bit more big umbrella on who, who comes exactly. into the tent. yeah.
1: And it's funny because, but it's a proof point that I could also build communities relatively rapidly, 4,000 people in a space of a month and a half. And people are actually really engaged. And you get these amazing interactions, right? And people really in pain. And that's why it's kind of telling me I'm heading in the right direction, even though it might not what it Explain, explain that to right? me a
3: little. What does that mean? People in pain? How do you I'm know so- that?
1: So I'll give you an example. I had one of the my posts, which was kind of about being the light, you know, like about shining light into people, being so good that that becomes an example for the world. And this man had posted on the comment section, this reminds me of my wife. And, you know, I'm moderating my page. So I, was, I applied to him, oh, well, then you must be a lucky man. And he replies, it's more complicated than that. And then he goes on with this whole story with how his wife left him, how he's a bad man and all this other stuff. And then I sent him a quote and I was like, well, who you are now is not who you have to be in the future. You can change things. And this is me replying as community of seven. And then he was like, thank you. I needed to hear that. And he was like, I lost my family. I have COVID right now. And I've been thinking of kind of ending things. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is crazy, right?" And then I kind of replied. I've been checking up on him. He posted this probably three weeks ago, and I've been posting, "How are you doing?" Right, literally within that chat. And he's like, "Oh, I'm doing a lot better. I'm starting to get." We're literally having these conversations on on Facebook, and once again, it's not aligned with who my core customer is and my demographic, but it aligns with the how can I help as the value, as the value, right, the, values, the
2: vision yeah. and the mission, yeah. yeah. Well, Lan, we've done a lot. We've covered a lot. We've covered love, marriage, child, Getaway cars. Getaway <laughs> cars, gang fights, skateboard fights, all of it. Real estate tycoonism. <laughs> and now we'd love to move to speed round. Are you ready for the speed round? <laughs> yeah, I hope. <laughs> I, I think you are. Okay. So the first question is, what's something about you that nobody expects?
1: Oh gosh, I usually use that drug getaway kind of thing, but I guess <laughs> what?
2: <laughs> we just got a, a
3: little bit more. We got a little more detail to the getaway car story. I,
1: I have another funny story. No one expects. Yeah. So we did the first Coachella, and me and my assistant at that time pretended like we were a Japanese girl band, so that we could get free swag from Levi's. <laughs> <laughs> So no one expects that.
3: On uh, my other podcast, I actually interviewed the CEO of Levi. So I'm going to report you and get all that class taken <laughs> back. <So. laughs>
1: but I would be an influencer back in day.
2: <laughs> exactly. day.
3: <laughs> so I was in Japan visiting a buddy while I was at business school. And we went to go see Weezer and Guns N' Roses play at this Tokyo concert, Summer Sonic. And we went the day before to like check out the venue, ride the trains, forgot how to get there. And we wanted to like, get on to sight to like just walk around and the security guard comes up to us and is like you know yelling at us in Japanese and we both took out our student IDs from the University of Alabama <laughs> and pretended we were like oh we're with the crimson white we're press pass press pass <laughs> <laughs> it works <laughs> yeah what is a book or a movie that has characters that you can you can relate to
1: i mean it's sad to say but i probably don't can't think of any and that's probably the issue I haven't, I don't, can't think of any movies or books that have represented me. And I think that's sad. That's probably the issue. That's probably why we're having this conversation.
3: Wow. I actually have a a comic book for you that I'm making Sharon read for the other comic book podcast about a Vietnamese American
2: family. So uh, yeah. to hear it. He's making me read. I can't believe this. (laughs) I'm really, I'm reading for ramen. (laughs) (laughs) That's my nonprofit. (laughs) Exactly. Reading for ramen. Okay. I think you're going to like this question. What's your favorite mom dish? For my
1: fa, definitely beef pho. Pho thai, which is like the thin slices of beef.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I love a good what, pho of <laughs> any kind.
3: What's your least favorite food?
2: Oh, anchovies. I hate, anchovies. <laughs> I hate it. Even in like a Caesar salad? I hate it. Oh, interesting. Oh. I don't like them on pizza. Like, I think that's weird, but I don't mind them in a Caesar salad. Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast?
1: Hmm. Interesting question. I mean, sky's the limit. Yeah, Oprah, of course. Everyone's answer is Oprah, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs>
3: actually, it's actually no. one of the. It's usually one of the Obamas, <laughs> actually. Oh, really? Yeah, no. the Obamas have superseded Oprah, man. Come on. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, Oprah's my gal. I You're the nice. first one to mention Oprah. Really? From what I remember. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah.
3: So, last question, Land. What does being a model minority mean for you?
1: I mean, we've had this conversation, Remen, where the term "model minority," I used to always kind of take offense for it because it's basically been used to kind of drive a wedge between the Asian and the Black communities and other people of color. But I also kind of see it as at, in terms of like, we're all kind of struggling in this world, immigrants or people of color or, or whatnot, to kind of make it in the world. And the goals to really being a model minority is to prove them all wrong. And if you kind of turn the the word around, it's really about, proving all those motherfuckers wrong that you can do it, right? That you can achieve success. Me making it in hip hop, me making it in the corporate world. You see me and you don't think, you know, that I could kind of be in a certain position, but Hey, I'm on, I've not only have a seat at the table, I've built the table. And it's kind of like the big F you. So for me, empowering that model minority to kind of mean, let me make this. So I basically built my own table.
2: Wow. Girl, I'm going to quote so cool. you on that. I know. <laughs> I not only have a seat at the table, I built the table. You are my hero.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love you guys. I can't wait to hear. I've been listening to your podcast and it's it's been really fun.
3: Awesome. Well, Lan, thank you so much for just sharing with everyone.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you too. You guys are, are awesome. Glad you guys are doing this. You guys are the best.
3: Americans are aspirational. Whoever is president, wherever we may be, where how many of our cases of coronavirus we may have. America as an idea, the shining city on the hill. We could debate whether that's earned or unearned or right or wrong. But I will say that that's the perception is that people look up to Americans wherever we go and down on us in certain ways too. But there is that aspect when you're speaking from the stage of you really, really, really have to check your condescension. That's a big thing. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel.
2: And I'm still Sharon Lee Toney.
3: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.